the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Hello there, and welcome to a shiny new episode of Capital Ideas. It's the podcast where members of the majority Democratic caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives take some time out at the Capitol to talk about their ideas. Without fail, these are ideas that are geared to make this a better place to live, work, raise a family, retire, get an education, grow some crops, take a hike, walk the dog, pretty much anything you want to do. Today's ideas come from Representative Mari Levitt of the 28th Legislative District. Just for reference, that's Lakewood, DuPont, Stillicum, University Place, and a whole lot of Washington's largest military installation, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. We'll talk about what she's up to this session, which is her fifth in the State House. We recorded this one on Friday, March 24th, 2023, and it went like this. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Maury Levitt from the 28th Legislative District up in Pierce County. It's uh, always good to talk to you, and I'm glad you're here today for a long conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you. We're one day short of a month before the end of the 2023 legislative session. It's a pretty good time to get an idea of how things are going, how key bills are faring now that they've hopefully passed out of the House and are being considered by the Senate. I want to talk to you about several, and I think what I should do here is ask you, what do you want to start with? You, you've sponsored bills having to do with cooling rooms for heat events, drug paraphernalia used to manufacture pills that are killing people, spam calls, military spouses. What do you want to talk about? Well, I, I think given uh, what's upcoming on March 30th is the Washington Department of Veterans Affairs has their um, Vietnam veteran honoring celebration, um, if you will, next week. And and uh, my father is a Vietnam War veteran, still lives in, in Pierce County, and um, which is what brought me to um, then Fort Lewis, now Joint Base Lewis McCord. So I'll probably start, given um, that's top of mind right now, is our military spouses. And we... Um, have a very strong bipartisan bill, the Military Spouse Employment Act, that's moving through the Senate at the time. It passed out of the House unanimously, and it really focuses on our military spouses and and um, who often moved every two or three years by no choice of their own to follow their partner and their active duty service member. And they really get uh, injured, if you will, um, because of those those many moves in employment. And so they face professional isolation, career stagnation. And so that bill will really help them remove the barriers in Washington to get them to work and then also remove any penalties when they have to move again, which they invariably will, that if they're an employment contract, that they no longer will be uh, penalized um, for getting out of that employment contract. And then finally, it requires uh, the Department of Commerce to do a, a campaign um, to, to help businesses recognize that military spouses are good employees um, and they're dedicated and, and they're worthy of hiring. So it will help those, um, those businesses understand why it's critical to hire a military spouse. So really a win-win for, for us, um, for the military spouses, and certainly our country's readiness when we know that if a spouse is satisfied, the active duty member is more likely to remain in the military and continue to serve and, 
And to me, that's a good thing. I co-chair the Joint Committee on Veterans and Military Affairs. Um, and so honored to do that with Senator Wagoner and also serve on the National Task Force for Military and Veterans Affairs because our district, I think, is the largest district in terms of retirees and active duty members. If we're not the largest, we're the second largest. Pretty sure we're the top, but um, it's important to our district and to our state. I suspect this kind of thing can be useful, particularly when Congress periodically thinks about which military bases to close. This certainly will put Washington in a good position. Yeah, it absolutely will. And you're, you're spot on. Um, you know, when our D- Department of Defense, um, this is a priority bill for them as well, um, because they know that, again, if military spouses are, are satisfied and they can get to work and they have employment, their military members will want to remain. And it is an important consideration for the Department of Defense as they look to align their mission and sometimes um, narrow bases. And, and so it puts us in a good position to keep the bases we have and, and to demonstrate our, um, you know, high regard for our military members um, in Washington. I want to ask you now about something that you have been working on that would not have been necessary 10 or 20 years ago. That has to do with helping communities to keep warming or cooling rooms open during extreme weather events, which are becoming unfortunately more and more common. Correct. And it's the, it's called the Extreme Weather Protection Act. uh, And it it does address, you know, and provides resources for our local jurisdictions um, during times of extreme heat um, and times of extreme cold weather. But it also addresses um, the poor air quality that we are seemingly um, seeing on a regular basis. My kids spend a lot of time inside these summers um, instead of outside playing soccer and playing during the times where we have really extreme poor air quality. And it's not recommended that, that that we're outdoors, and so it addresses that real climate um, challenge that we're having as well. And these extreme weather patterns will continue, and we know that we need to to do um, everything that we can to provide those resources for our local jurisdictions to protect our most vulnerable. And this bill, interestingly enough, came out of um, the time of June 2021, where over 100 Washingtonians died within a week. And over 800 in the Pacific Northwest died that summer. And um, it was that, that weekend, it was very hot. And our, our local first responders were trying to drop off our most vulnerable and seniors to um, a local cooling center in a city. And um, they tried to drop folks off and they were told, sorry, we don't open until noon. Well, by noon, it was really, really hot. And I spent that, that morning, that Sunday morning and that weekend um, calling local electeds um, in that city and others um, in other jurisdictions trying to get them to open um, the cooling centers earlier and open and stay open later. And it was really a tough road. And when I finally um, talked to that particular city who um, told our first responders, our firefighters who were dropping off the most vulnerable individuals, you know, no, which um, to me is unfathomable. Um, why? And they said, we simply don't have the resources. We didn't have the resources to do it. And so for me, um, this bill came out of not ever wanting a local jurisdiction to tell me no again, that they can't take care of their own residents and the most vulnerable. How are you proposing to help these organizations open before noon? Yeah, so it's a grant program for our local jurisdictions and our tribal partners that they can tap into. It'll be administered by our Department of Emergency Management and Military Department um, to administer grants. So local jurisdictions will apply for funding um, for an HVAC system or for a fan or tents or water um, or, you know, a, a inside shelter for folks and their pets. It allows pets as well because we know that a lot of individuals will not come in 
um, to a shelter if they can't take care of their pet. And so we want them to be safe also. So um, it'll provide those local jurisdictions with the resources they need that they can't afford right now. No, no cities have been planning for weather events that they couldn't have predicted and so and our tribal partners. So it'll get them those resources to adapt equipment um, or adjust needs as they need to in order to keep those places open. Let's talk about something else now that has an impact on human life. And that is your bill having to do with drug paraphernalia. Yeah, that's House Bill 1209. It it just passed out unanimously from the Senate Law and Justice Committee, and I'm grateful to the senators um, for doing so. And it requires or it makes it illegal, rather, for someone to use a pill press um, when um, intending to mass distribute controlled substances. And why this matters, uh, these folks can take a pill press, which are used for medicine, which is good, and vitamins, great. But they're taking these these simple machines um, and using them to create uh, up to 3,000 pills per hour. Um, and these pills are, are made to look like Adderall or Oxy or something that a, an individual might take, Percocet, um, for pain they may be having or for a particular medical condition. Um, but instead, they're laced with fentanyl. And the Drug Enforcement Administration has a great social media slogan, um, One Pill Will Kill. Um, and while it's a little corny, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of that, um, it's exactly um, the fact. And, and just a tiny little trace of fentanyl um, in these pills is killing our youth. And just in Pierce County, a, a two-year-old picked up one of these little pills on a playground um, and died um, in Tacoma. And so our communities are just being ravaged by fentanyl. And these bad actors are taking these pill presses and using these machines to just mass distribute for a very little dollars um, and making a lot. And so we are joining, I hope, uh, British Columbia and and other states to uh, make it illegal to use these machines for this purpose and really protect our most vulnerable. The bill is called the Tyler Lee Yates bill um, because of an individual and representative, Dan Griffey's district of the 35th, who law enforcement, because there was a camera, he took a pill, he thought it was Percocet. Um, and it, it, the, on the camera, it shows him um, the impact, and it shows him dying just through the process of taking that one pill that he thought he was taking something for his pain that he was having, um, and it turned out to be laced with fentanyl. So it's impacting our communities all across socioeconomic backgrounds um, and really just killing our youth, and we just simply can't allow that in Washington any longer. It seems like we've got a theme here, which is a lot of bills that have to do with mortality. And I'm going to stretch here and say that the Sam Martinez Act that you've sponsored, which has to do with hazing, fits into this category in a way. This bill is moving along pretty well. It's something that you've worked on real hard. You've worked with Sam's family. Rather than me tell the story here, I want to get that from you so that people can understand what you're doing and why this thing is called the Sam Martinez Act. Yeah, thank you for that. And and, um, San Martinez was a, and it's called the the Stop Hazing San Martinez Act, just also passed the Senate um, Law and Justice Committee just the the other night. So very grateful to our Senate colleagues for doing so. Um, Last year we had Sam's Law and that, you know, ensured that our colleges and universities are doing education and training because there is a culture of secrecy and hazing um, that is prevalent and we need to stop that. This year we're focusing on holding those um, who are engaged in hazing activities accountable and also sending a message in Washington State that will no longer allow these kinds of activities to occur. And if you do engage in these activities, you're going to be held liable for that. 
Sam Martinez was a student like any other student coming onto campus that fall at Washington State University in um, autumn of 2019 and had his whole life ahead of him, super excited to be there, um, was going to be a business major, you know, loved playing soccer with his friends, he loved eating tacos that his dad would make him, um, you know, just a happy youth, excited for the future. And three months later, his parents packed up his belongings and brought the belongings home um, without their son because he um, died from a hazing incident that was determined to be hazing by local law enforcement, not just um, conjecture or, or speculation of what it was. It was determined um, to be so. And um, in the course of that investigation, um, the 12 months, it's currently a misdemeanor for hazing, and 12 months was not enough to do the investigation. These national fraternities um, and organizations um, delay intentionally, knowing they can run out the clock. Um, and it's important to give our law enforcement tools to be able to do those thorough investigations that we need them to do. And hazing doesn't just happen in fraternities, organizations, but it happens in marching bands, student clubs, and organizations. It happens across the board, and it's really important that we do that. The other thing that's really helpful, for the first time that hazing survivors will be able to get a restraining order similar to other groups, um, because oftentimes these incidents go unreported, 95% don't report, but it's psychological trauma, if not, you know, long-term physical trauma, and those who are the hazers don't want those individuals to report, and so we need to be able to protect them um, from those activities as well. So it's really important we get this done. We'll be joining several other states in this effort um, who unfortunately also have laws, Collins Law, Timothy Piazza's Law. I mean, I can name different individuals and youth um, who have died from hazing that those laws are also called them across our country. And and, um, unfortunately, I hope that the Stan Martinez Stop Hazing Act will become one of those as well because we just must stop this, this secrecy and we must stop these activities in Washington State. And you know, not that long ago, um, a, a young man um, named Luke Tyler also um, went on to Washington State University's campus. Um, and a few months later, his parents just packed up his belongings and brought them home. And while that determination investigation is ongoing, it's speculative that it could be related to hazing. It's really important that we just send a message, a very strong message in Washington, that we just will no longer allow these things to occur. Mari, we've been talking for about 15 minutes here, and I know that you, like everybody else around here, has a pretty tight schedule. In fact, we had to reschedule this conversation because you are packed so tightly. But I want to give you one last chance here to talk about another one of your bills. My suggestion would be that we would talk about something that I think everyone who has a telephone can relate to because it probably drives up millions of people's blood pressure every day, and that is robocalls and spam calls that are so prevalent now. What are you going to do about that? Gosh, um, 825,000 Washingtonians in 2021 were impacted by robocalls and and scams where these hard-earned dollars were taken from these individuals and our seniors and most vulnerable. And and that's why I've introduced the uh, Robocall Scam Protection Act, House Bill 1051 this year that is uh, moving through the Senate. Um, And it really protects our most vulnerable, our financially fragile, our seniors and our youth alike from these robocalls. And, And people think, well, gosh, that's not like a... A big thing, but it really is, you know, as I mentioned, 825,000 just in 2021 alone who lost dollars, who lost hard earned dollars um, from these scammers who are very entrepreneurial. I give them credit, you know, for a very cheap way to do business. um, They get a lot of money in return by folks. um, who, you know, think that they owe $222 or their utilities are about to be shut off. Well, that's scary. 
Um, or I um, think that they're about to get $1,025.74, um, and they have bills to pay that they can't pay right now. I would want that money, too, if I can't pay my bills. And so, unfortunately, um, these folks are, are falling prey by these really bad actors who are continually to, to do this work, not just in Washington, but across the state, um, at higher numbers and higher numbers each year. And that's why AARP and, and several others and our good established businesses are all in support of this bill because they know that we need to rid rid ourselves and rid Washington from these really bad actors who figured out a cheap way to to make a big buck on on our most vulnerable. So how would this bill work? It would allow um, the Attorney General's office, um, it'll put robocalls under the Consumer Protection Act so that when these things are occurring, the, the Attorney General's office can take action through the Consumer Protection Act, um, whether um, individuals or whether large telecom providers um, who are bad actors, not our good ones, because we have great telecom providers who do good work, um, who are intentionally um, transferring these these um, these numbers, knowing um, what's about to happen to our consumers. So it'll hold them accountable at a pretty significant way, um, and it'll also allow those you know that pesky you know um, no um, contact list um, that's violated all the time. It'll put that in statute that if you're on the no contact list, you cannot receive robocalls. How's that bill doing? Um, it's doing well. It's in the Senate rules. I'm hoping to get pulled um, this week or so, and then, then I can move on to, um, you know, I'm hoping that the Senate takes it up and passes it out unanimously like it came out of the House, and, and then I can focus on our workforce shortage because I've got compacts, both mental health counseling compacts, speech audiology compact are moving through to address critical needs in those, um, in those areas to allow people to get to work quickly. I started with military spouses. Maybe I'll end there, um, but compacts are workforce. Workforce compacts are wonderful for our military spouses to, to be able to come into the state and quickly use their license to get to work and take care of our patients. Explain how a compact works. Yeah, um, they are, um, compacts are amazing in that they are interstate compacts um, that allow a, a person in a particular field like speech therapy and audiology, uh, mental health counseling, dental or dental hygienist, nursing compact. It allows those folks who have degrees and are licensed in those fields coming to Washington to quickly get to work because we are a compact state. Also importantly, it allows someone who currently is working in Washington who have to be a compact state to go to Kentucky or go to Alabama if they're also in the compact to quickly get to work if they were to move. And so it really allows flexibility as we know our populations move around to different states to be able to apply once, go through the process once, and then quickly get to work. Whereas now, uh, many people have to do the same fees, you know, pull their transcripts from 20 years ago where they maybe they can't find it. Um, same application, same background checks, all of those over and over and over again, particularly if you're a military spouse. And so it removes those burdens and it allows these states with public safety um, at the top of mind because there are requirements that they have to complete and meet. Um, and if there are discipline issues, every all the states in the compact will know, whereas now there's no way to trace that. So it really enhances our public safety as well in these fields. What else? This is your last chance. I just think that this session is is so great to be back in person. Um, it, it's just a joy to um, see colleagues and see those advocates who are working hard on a variety of different issues from workforce to housing to community safety to economic prosperity. These are all of the things we're working really diligently on this session and behavioral health. Um, which we know is so critical. And so um, it's just great to be back, seeing everyone working um, toward these important efforts to um, take care of the many issues that our state um, residents are, are struggling with right now. 
I think people know a little more about their state government than they did when we started talking, and that's what Capital Ideas is here for. Thank you, Representative Mari Levitt from the 28th District. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. It's happy to be here. That's it for today. I hope you got something out of these few minutes with Representative Mari Levitt. If you haven't subscribed to Capital Ideas yet, you're missing out on your best chance to hear reasonable grown-ups discuss the ideas, issues, and policies that spring from the seed of democracy here in the Evergreen State. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or by visiting housedemocrats.wa.gov and hitting that media button up at the top. This is your state government, and what happens here matters. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for your time. 